I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. Coming up, Carol Gigliotti talks about some of the amazing creative abilities of animals showcased in her new book, The Creative Lives of Animals. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Automobile drivers began getting the lead out of their gasoline almost 50 years ago. But for pilots of small general aviation aircraft, think Cessnas and the like, not so much. According to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, aviation fuel is the largest source of lead in the atmosphere in the U.S., but currently there are no alternatives for pilots of most small planes. However, that might change in the coming years. Last fall, the Federal Aviation Administration certified the first unleaded aviation fuel for all piston-driven aircraft. That category includes most non-commercial airplanes. And last October, the EPA initiated an endangerment finding that leaded aviation fuel harms public health. Last week, the Boulder County Commissioners unanimously agreed to support the EPA's finding. If the finding is approved, it would lead to regulatory standards in the near future. It will take a year or more to ramp up production of the newly approved fuel, but hopefully we'll soon be able to rid this source of a deadly neurotoxin from our soil and bloodstreams. Thanks to How on Earth contributor Tom McKinnon for that report. For How on Earth, I'm Joel Parker. You've probably heard of the gene editing technology called CRISPR, which is based on bacterial enzymes that act like an immune system allowing the bacteria to recall a DNA viral sequence and subsequently cut it up when re-encountered. A new version of that technology called CRISPR 2.0 is a more targeted approach. Instead of simply making cuts to shut off specific genes, scientists can now swap a single DNA base for another. In theory, this should be safer because you're less likely to cut an important gene by mistake. Last year, scientists used this new version to change a single letter in the DNA of a New Zealand woman who had heart disease due to an inherited risk for high cholesterol. The cholesterol-lowering treatment was developed by the U.S. biotechnology company Verve Therapeutics and relied on an injection of the CRISPR enzymes, which acted in the patient's liver cells. According to the researchers, that single change should be enough to permanently lower a person's levels of bad cholesterol, the fatty molecule that causes arteries to clog and harden. An even newer form of CRISPR could take things further still. So-called prime editing, or CRISPR 3.0, will allow scientists to insert large pieces of DNA into one's genome. If it works in people, it could let scientists replace disease-causing genes with their normal forms. Together, these newer versions of CRISPR could broaden the scope of gene editing to take on many conditions, not all of them genetic. Someday, people may have the option to add genes thought to protect against high blood pressure or certain diseases to their genetic codes. 
Most of us see animals as something less than us smart, clever humans. Professor Emeritus Carol Gigliotti wants to change this limited view of animals. In her new book, The Creative Lives of Animals, you will find intimate glimpses into the creative process demonstrated by animals, offering new thinking on animal intelligence, emotion, and self-awareness. But more importantly than nifty little tidbits of how amazing some non-human creatures can be, you will find new perspective on animals as agents in their own lives, as valuable contributors to their world and ours, and as guides in understanding how creativity may contribute to conserving the natural world. Welcome to the show, Carol. I'm speaking today with Carol Gigliotti, the author of Creative Lives of Animals. And this is a big jump for you, Carol, getting into the animal field because your background, which I will let you tell, but it's fascinating to me that you come out of the um, creative arts. And so it's not surprising that you're looking at animals, but it, it's a big jump. And I love it that you have really established this connection with animals. So maybe start by talking a little bit about your background. It's not quite a big jump because I've been writing about animals uh, for at least 20, 25 years. So it, in terms of it, animal studies. Before that, when I was uh, mostly doing visual work with some text in it, I also, my, all my work was about our relationship with animals. So when I um, went to get my doctorate, I wanted to do high-end animation. So I uh, did the doctorate at the Advanced Computing Center for Arts and Design. So I already had an MFA the MFA is in printmaking, and then the doctorate is in animation computer science. Lots of creativity there in, yeah. in numerous <laughs> fields, which probably gives you an appreciation for all the different sensory modalities that animals use for creativity. Well, and it also really, it's funny because as a visual artist, I was always very intuitive and, you know, rationality was just not in it never seemed to be very popular in my mind. So um, when I was learning things about programming, I think one of the things was that I learned um, if then else, you know, I mean, sure. just that simple part of an algorithm that there are choices, I thought just really blew me away. Um, and I think then it allowed me to be able to do scientific research. So at first I was writing about um, ethics and technology and got really involved in talking about um, biotechnology and its effect on animals. And this book what was or is um, really about painting a picture in words about how creative animals are, but how powerful and essential they are to the universe, to ecosystems. And so before we go further, maybe you could define for the listeners the difference between creativity and innovation, because I think that's really important before we start talking about the details. Sure. Well, creativity, I, I define it in the book, and I tried to redefine it um, to make it wide enough to include all species. You know, I, there are a couple other scientists who were biologists and a neuroscientist who, um, an evolutionary biology, which is interesting because creativity, as I define it, is an individual who creates something that is novel and is meaningful to them. So it doesn't have to be meaningful to everybody else, to anybody else, and that includes humans, but it's meaningful to them. It it has the possibility of affecting larger groups 
cultures, and that includes, of course, animal cultures and species. And then the last part was something that once I got that definition, definition, I think it, for me, it allowed me to really go further with the book than I thought I would. So the idea that individual animals affect biodiversity, and that if we kill off individual animals in families, groups, species, conservation is really not very useful. The kind of conservation that doesn't include um, individuals and their roles in biodiversity. Yeah, I want to come back to this idea of biodiversity, but first I want to circle back to the point you made initially, because I think that's so important, the evolutionary aspect, because I think if people have a hard time seeing or accepting that animals could be creative, if they think about it in evolutionary terms, and of course, Darwinian evolution tells right. us that, you know, all, all organisms, whether they're, you know, humans or viruses, will be selected so that um, they're, they're maximally successful in their reproduction. So that means their individual actions and their adaptations are important. So each individual animal, it's how it acts in its environment and adapts to its environment is going to be really important in terms of how it reproduces and passes its genes on to the next generation, which is, of course, the essence of evolution. So, of course, in that sense, then being creative and innovative makes great sense. And I think maybe even we could think about plants, but that's a whole different follow of wax. <laughs> so you, in your book, you have so many wonderful stories. And like I said, we'll come back, we'll circle back to the bio, biodiversity. But I think if we tell a few of those stories, then the listeners will start to accept this idea that animals are in fact extremely creative. And in, in many cases, they're more creative in their own special niches than we humans could be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at, first of all, animals' senses um, and animals' way of, of being in the world is so varied. Um, and ours, of course, we know how we deal with the world. And, and you know, our senses are useful to us. E each species has its own world or umwelt, the way that species inhabits that, that environment. The, those environments change. Animals have been having to be creative to continue to live in the world. They've always been creative, but I think the fact that they're being very creative in order to live in a changing world, just like we are. So yes. that idea, I think, is something that might set off something in, in a reader's mind. Um, the idea, too, is not to compare humans and animals. And it's not to compare one species to another. You know, who's smarter, an elephant or an ant? It, that's not a good question. It's um, each animal is very intelligent, very creative within their own species and within their own way of dealing with the world. You, you asked a question about innovation. And one of the things I, I probably should have said was that innovation is different than creativity because Innovation is more about, in my mind, more about producing something, where creativity often is just a way of perhaps understanding something. Perhaps it doesn't lead anywhere. And uh, one of the things I did in the book was really emphasize the creative practice 
because I've always been very irritated that, especially being in in the sciences when I advanced computing center or even working with sciences on different art projects, the idea that that artists and the arts had methodologies was just <laughs> was just so new to a lot of scientists. Really? You mean you just don't dive in and do what you want? Well, no, you know, (laughs) there are many methodologies. And one of the most important ones in creative behavior of all kinds is that creative practice. So there are certain phases. The beginning one is exploratory. And sometimes, you know, people, and when I say people, I mean all species in the world, you know, may stop right there and not go further. But, you know, we always expect in our sense of creativity, I think, to have a product. But if you really are practicing creativity or, you know, I watched all kinds of ways that human beings, my students, practice their creativity. And it's an iterative process. So they might explore something, then they might um, decide to figure out Uh, you know, brainstorm how they could communicate that or what they would do with that. And maybe that would stop again right there. Um, So I think those kinds of things were the the, um, methodologies, um, experience that I tried to bring to all the research that's in the book. I really liked it that you brought in those stories of your students because I thought that that illustrated how you then approached looking at animals in terms of their creativity. And I I was just thinking that maybe um, a couple of the examples from the animal world would emphasize that. So one thing that, one story that I really liked was the story of the elephants and the electric fences. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe you could describe that. I just thought that was so. I really had an image of, you know, the, an elephant walking up to this fence and get getting shocked and then being really pissed off and then go find a rock and just you know throwing it off <laughs> the electric fence to kill the electricity i mean you know animals are are brilliant really i mean some yeah. some animals and not just some species against another but you know there's a continuum of the way any species deals with something. So, you know, this elephant was not only brilliant about what he did and creative, but he also had the ability to get pissed off about it, I think, and actually do something about it and not put up with the um, limits that humans had had decided that he had to adhere to. Right, right. And it happened that there was a rock adjacent, you know, to the fence and the elephant could pick it up. And maybe if that hadn't worked, he or she would have tried something else. No, it's just there are a number of not just elephants, but donkeys is another thing that's not in the book. But I mean, I came across so many research papers about these things, but also just anecdotes that people would have. And and it was a very similar story with a donkey, where all the donkeys, you know, would go, there were a number of donkeys, and they go up and they really wanted to do something about that about not being able to get out of this uh, corral. And finally, one donkey just came up and picked up the bar and put it aside, and then everybody went through. <laughs> it's kind of like that. It's like you have one person who's thinking out of the box, and and that's very improv- improvisational. And, and like you mentioned at several points in the book, 
there's a consensus oftentimes in social animals, um, you know, different individuals being creative and exploring different possibilities, and then, you know, how they work out this collective decision making process. And I'm specifically struck, I've been thinking uh, and talking to people and reading a lot lately about honeybees. Yes, and that's Tom Seeley's um, research. It, that research, I think, is incredible. I mean, first of all, one of the things I really enjoyed about doing the book was coming across and meeting people who had spent their entire lives in the field with a particular species and, and a particular, sometimes a particular group of animals. But when honeybees want to make a new nest because the uh, her queen wants to leave and start her you know a new nest so they're going to have to make a new nest what they do they don't just sort of fly around and say oh well let's go here bang it's done no and and like you were saying there's a uh uh a Seely calls a quorum they found that the bees didn't do a consensus they ended up with a quorum and how they did this was there are scouts that go out to find the nest and the scouts will bring back what they think would be the best nest. So you have all these individuals deciding what they think would be best. They can convince somebody next to them or near them or whatever to go and see the nest and agree, yes, this is the good nest. And what's important is that the other bee um, who might have a different idea, only will agree if she goes and sees that particular nest. Her mind up for herself. And then finally, one nest comes up within the time they have to make a new nest. So in other words, if almost everybody agrees, then they go for that. And that I thought was really, really interesting, most particularly because many people don't even think of bees as intelligent, creative, having agency. Insects, especially, you know, who they have no feeling for. But no, they actually have uh, the ability to do all these things and make these decisions. The individual was really important. And that was one of the things that made me just so sure that what we need to do is to begin to look at individual animals for many reasons. But we see them, like Jonathan Balcom says, you know, as sort of one big like in terms of fish, he calls them fishes because they're not just one group of fish just going in, just moving around the ocean. They're individual fishes in a school of fish. And to um, talk about another really cool story, again, to give the listeners some um, concrete details about animals that maybe they might not have thought of as having this kind of agency. I loved the story about the clownfish and their cleaning <laughs> behavior. And as you said, they have interactions with many different species that they clean and they can remember those different individuals and make judgments about them. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about those critters because that's not only entertaining, but also really illustrative. Yeah, the cleaner fish, um is is really interesting the idea that um and i can't remember his first name but bashari uh was the the researcher that did this and really how can i put it it's almost like a business in the ocean where <laughs> there are these cleaning fish that um other fish come to and they're the cleaner fish clean them um with their mouths and sometimes what they 
and they might nip because what you know it might be really tasty and then the fish that gets really irritated um but it's it it is like a business it's like bringing your only you're bringing your body in to get clean which you know we do facials and things like that you know, pedicures, manicures. An earlier incident, too, that I thought was really interesting about the grouper and, and the eel. Groupers and eels often, you know, actually hunt together. And the, the eel go, is able to go into places the grouper can't and scare out the fish, and then the grouper and the eel eat the fish. There is, in both examples, this cooperative behavior of fish or ocean that, you know, I don't, we really weren't aware of before. And I know, I I think I have in the book that Franz de Waal saying, this really throws down the gauntlet that we all have all this information and all this primates. We're, we're just not looking at other species and understanding that they have intelligence and agency as well. The fun thing about the cleaner thing is that different cleaner fish actually act differently. You know, some of them are more honest about not biting off some of the really juicy stuff where others will only do that with the fish that are local because the local fish, you know, have to go to them and then they'll treat the fish who are coming from a far better far and we don't have to deal with them all the time. Yeah, it gives you so much appreciation, many of these stories, for the mental capabilities of animals that we're not, we as humans are not used to thinking of as smart and having agency. I mean, we're used to thinking of other mammals, like we all have, have, or many of us have had pets, dogs and cats, and we're, we're aware of, you know, their amazing abilities, but things like insects and fish, going back to your earlier comments about biodiversity, we can start to appreciate the significance of all these diverse creatures, yes. not only as individuals, but for their role in interacting with other creatures and building these bigger and bigger networks in ecosystems. Yes, certainly. I mean, as someone who feels that all animals, and that includes domestic animals, are individuals and have agency and are intelligent and are subjects of a life. Thank you so much for talking. Thank Carol. you so Thanks. much. That was Professor Carol Gigliotti talking about her new book, The Creative Lives of Animals. She provides a new perspective on animals as agents in their own lives, as valuable contributors to their world and ours, and as guides in understanding how creativity may contribute to conserving the natural world. Presenting a powerful argument for the importance of recognizing animals as individuals and as creators of a healthy, biodiverse world, this book offers insights into the creativity of animals. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm currently the executive producer and I produced this week's show, which was expertly engineered by Shannon Young. Additional contribution by Susan Moran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.